I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the One Woman Book Club podcast. I'm your host, Grace, and this is the podcast where we talk about all things book-related, author-related, any current events or new releases or anything going on in the book community. We talk about my life and my current reads and reading wrap-ups, and we discuss a half of our monthly book club pick, which this month was the only one left by Riley Sager. I hope you all had an amazing two weeks. It's been two weeks since I recorded last, and here we are. We are recording. We are ending out July. So I'm very curious. We just did the one book this month as opposed to the two books that we did in June, and I also only uploaded two episodes this month instead of my typical four. If this is your first month listening, I would typically upload four episodes for the book that we discuss, and each week we would discuss a quarter of that book instead of each episode being a half. And I don't know how I feel about it. I'm still kind of on the fence. I think I'm going to stick to this for August which by the way, the August releases, you're listening to this on Monday, the 24th, the August releases are going to be out this week. So be sure that you're following my Instagram at Grace's Reading Nook, where we will be voting and discussing what we want for our August book club pick. I just feel like in general, from the messages I've gotten from people, um, and just from the polls that I've been doing about where you're at in the book and everything, everyone's been kind of on a slower reading pace this summer, just because there's so much going on. We have weddings, we have barbecues, we have, you know, time with family and friends. Summer is such a busy time that I don't want to have to be reading two books. Um, And I think for the most part, this two episode schedule worked as well, Um, especially for a thriller, I guess for any book. But sometimes when you read just a quarter of it, 
Actually, I take that back. I find that especially for romances. When I was just reading a quarter of the romance that like maybe like meet me at the lake or something like that. And I had to upload um, every single week for just a quarter. I was like, well, you know, not too much happened this week. A thriller, I feel like there's more to talk about, which is always, you know, easier. But we will not be reading another thriller for August because I like to switch up the genres that we read. So I'm not going to be making a thriller option. Anyway, we're going to be doing one book in August. The releases will be out the week of the 24th, which is the week that you're listening to this. And I'll talk about the reading schedule on my Instagram at Grace's Reading Nook. But again, it's going to be a two upload schedule. Um, It's probably going to be just looking at the calendar right now, August 14th and August 28th. That's just what I'm thinking. So everyone has time to get the book in their hands and start reading that for the August 14th episode. But we're still in July and we have a lot to talk about today. Um, We have finished The Only One Left by Riley Sager. I have added it to my official Riley Sager author ranking, which is huge. And it took me a little bit of time to think. I started my bookstagram over two years ago and Riley Sager has always been like a huge part of that journey. Ever since I started, his books have been all over it, um, new releases and his backlist. So they're actually, I, I think he might be the only author that has a significant amount of books out that I've read every single one of. I went through his whole backlist and there are some misses on there for me, definitely. But a lot of them are just really fun. Like like I said, I think I posted this week about my author ranking for him. His books are, they're nothing like revolutionary. They're not like my favorite thrillers, but I think that they can be really fun. And spoiler The only one left is actually pretty high up on my author ranking. So I do want to discuss the book in in, as a whole before I go into my author ranking. So that'll be at the end of today's episode. Um, But I really hope you all enjoyed it. It is getting mixed reviews. There is nothing like a Riley Sager thriller to split the community in half. I feel like it is really, really crazy. I got actually so many DMs. I finished this book about two weeks ago, as soon as I uploaded my last episode, I pretty much took the time to finish the books. I'm like, I need to know where this is going. I need to know what's happening. So I finished it quite a while ago. And when I did finish it, I put on my story like, please, like, let me know what you're thinking about that ending because it's kind of crazy, like spoiling. We're not spoiling anything. Hopefully, if you're listening to this, you've read the whole book. But um, that ending was absolutely wild. And so like, I don't know, just I feel like it could really either you love it or you hate it type of thing. Um, And I got so many messages, a lot of which I'm going to read here on the podcast a little later. Um, Just either you absolutely loved it, thought it was one of your favorite twist endings ever, or you thought it was just like, what the hell was that? Like throwing everything at a wall to see what sticks. And I hate to do this, but I'm somewhere in the middle. Like I enjoyed it for the fun of it. But I feel like it was absolutely chaotic and did not need to be done in the way that it was done. Um, But anyway, we're going to get into that in a little while. Let's talk about what I've been reading so far this month. I'm hoping to finish one or two more books before the end of the month, um, just to get my total up a little bit for July. But I have read five books so far this month, two of which we haven't discussed yet on the podcast that I'll be talking about with you guys. 
the other two that I did read that I've already discussed were Yellow Face and The Dinner. Um, so today we're going to be talking about Dead Eleven, which I did read, so happy. And I also read Mrs. Nash's Ashes, um, which are two books that I got at the same time. I'm just now realizing I think I talked about that in my last episode where I went to Bull Moose and just got a bunch of books, which I haven't been doing in a while. But I did just buy two new books last night. That's beside the point. That's okay. Um, let's first talk about Dead Eleven because I actually heard from a lot of you that you wanted to read it after I talked about it on the podcast two weeks ago. And I loved it. And I don't think it's getting enough hype. Spoiler. I don't know why I always say spoiler. Like it's not. Mrs. Nash's Ashes was also incredible. So let's, they're actually, oh my God, they're both five-star reads. They're both five-star reads amazing. So we're going to talk about Dead Eleven first. It's by Jimmy Giuliano. And I believe it's his debut novel. Let me just um, double check on that. So yes, I'm looking at Jimmy Giuliano's Goodreads profile right now. And I do think that Dead Eleven is his debut novel. What a debut. It is such a unique and cool thriller. It's really more into the horror territory, though, but it is like light horror. Um, it's really not gory. And I don't think it's anything too, too scary. I was obsessed with it. So I watched this show back and I just had this revelation. I watched this show. God, I was going into my freshman year of high school. So that would have been 2009. So I watched a show in 2009 with my dad called Harper's Island. Um, it was so good. I don't know if I was just like young and not really like hadn't seen a lot of like shows like it. But my dad also loved it. We were like obsessed and Dead Eleven, it, this is such a niche, niche thing. I'm sure the vast majority of you have never seen Harper's Island. If you have, and you've read Dead Eleven, it has very similar vibes, just like spooky, creepy island vibes, like nothing too like terrifying. Anyway, I guess Jimmy Giuliano is a writer and a high school educator. It says on Goodreads, several of his stories have gone viral on the Reddit No Sleep forum, which is spooky and cool. Um, and yeah, Dead Eleven is his debut novel. And it's currently actually in development at A&E Studios, which is really, really cool. So it might be made into a movie, which is amazing. Um, this was so, so, so cool, you guys. Um, and actually, I remember writing this or thinking this while I was reading, I would read you guys the synopsis. And I believe I read you guys the synopsis in last week's episode when I talked about the books that I was buying. Go if you if you miss that, if you do not know anything about it, go into this blind, like because even the little synopsis that it gives at the beginning, like in the little paper on the front or even on Goodreads or whatever, if you look it up, it kind of gives something away that I would have rather not known and would have just rather gone along for the ride. Like if you like a light horror um, and you're into sort of like spooky vibes, but nothing too out of the ordinary, nothing too like hard to believe, try this one out. I am telling you it is so, so for the fans of like Grady Hendrix, um, Riley Sager even, but it's the writing is like I think way better than Riley Saker. It really reminded me more of Grady Hendrix, who is one of my like favorite horror authors. Um, it was so, so good. So let me read you guys my review. I do not think I gave any spoilers, um, but I'll just do a brief read through just in case. All right. So I said it's five stars, five star horror. That's amazing. This is such a summer horror book too. So if you're in the mood for like 
summer vibes and you want something a little spooky, this is it. Would also be great for October and spooky season, but I don't know why. I just love this for this season. I said this book was a blast from beginning to end. I absolutely adored it. I was sucked in from the very first page, never knowing who or what to believe. And after just closing it, I'm still not entirely sure what to believe about Clifford Island. Side note, this totally reminded me of um, Chasing the Boogeyman by Richard Chismar, which Chef's Kiss, like literally one of my all-time favorite, favorite horror books. Like if you have not read Chasing the Boogeyman, you need to, and it's not talked about enough. And I also just got the advanced reader copy of the next book in that sort of like universe called Becoming the Boogeyman. Dying to read it, but I think I'm going to wait until like September, a little closer to spooky season. Anyway, not knowing who to trust, like including the author, has those vibes. So cool. So I said, okay, I'm echoing what I have recently said. Fans of Grady Hendrix and Richard Chismar will love this one. And they are two of my favorite horror authors and authors in general. The plot of this is just so unique. And I would say go into it completely blind, barely even read the synopsis. The twists and turns will be so much more enjoyable. I loved the creepy setting of Clifford Island, the fun 90s nostalgia, the personality and uniqueness of each of our characters and narrators, and so much more. I read this in just a few sittings and already want to go back and read it again. This would make a remarkable movie, and I'm already thinking of a dream cast in my head. If you guys have read it and have any thoughts on that, let me know. I can't wait to read more from this author and would even love a sequel to this one. Thrilling, haunting, spooky, unique, and fun from start to finish. I really don't want to go too, too much in the, into the plot, like I said, but just trust my review on this one, you guys. It was so good. And the cover is just stunning. The next book that I read since the last time we spoke is Mrs. Nash's Ashes by Sarah Adler. And it was another five-star read in a five-star romance, which is so hard to come by and so fun. So this was one, I think I talked about this last week that I saw on the shelf and I was like, oh, the cover is so cute. Um, but the the title, to be completely honest, like doesn't really spark too much like love in me. I'm like, oh, is this going to be like super duper cheesy? Like, what is this going to be about? But it has gone semi viral on Bookstagram. So many of my favorite creators have been loving it, um, including one of my favorite, my recent favorites, Beach Reads and Bubbly. Um, she hyped it up so, so much that I was like, all right, I got to give this a try. And also, you guys, this is another debut novel. So cool. I love reading debut novels that get five stars because it's introducing a cool new author to me that I maybe would not have seen otherwise. So I will read you the synopsis of this one. It says, a starry-eyed romantic, a cynical writer, and the ashes of an elderly woman take the road trip of a lifetime that just might upend everything they believe about true love. Millicent Watts Cohen is on a mission. When she promised her elderly best friend that she'd reunite her with the woman she fell in love with nearly 80 years ago, she never imagined that would mean traveling from D.C. to Key West with three tablespoons of Mrs. Nash's remains in her backpack. But Millie's determined to give her friend a symbolic happily ever after before it's really too late and hopefully reassure herself of love's lasting power in the process. She just didn't expect to have a living travel companion. After a computer glitch grounds flights, Millie is forced to catch a ride with Hollis Hollenbeck, an also stranded acquaintance from her ex's MFA program. Hollis certainly does not believe in happily ever after, symbolic or otherwise, and makes it quite clear that he can't fathom Millie's plan ending well for anyone. 
but as they contend with peculiar bed and breakfasts, unusual small town festivals, endear with a death wish, Millie begins to suspect that her reluctant travel partner might enjoy her company more than he lets on. Because for someone who supposedly doesn't share her views on romance, Hollis sure is becoming invested in the success of their journey. And the closer they get to their destination, the more Millie has to admit that maybe this trip isn't just about Mrs. Nash's love story after all, Maybe it's also about her own. This book was a delight from start to finish. If you like Emily Henry, if you like Abby Jimenez, if you like all of your favorite romances that we always talk about, the ones with the deliciously witty banter, realistic, fun characters, an amazing grumpy sunshine romance, maybe even like enemies to lovers a little bit, um, just unlikely romance. You will love this. One of my favorite things is that the steam didn't wait until we're in the last quarter. The steam, the steam started like pretty early on into the book from what I remember. And I love that because why just save the steam for the end? Why not enjoy it the whole time? Let me read you guys my review. It was so good. And do not let the title like the cheesy title deter you. It is a delight. Like that's the best thing I can say is that it's truly, truly a delight. So I said, this book was so charming, nearly a perfect romance. There wasn't much I didn't like, so it has to be five stars. This is the true definition of grumpy sunshine. Millicent is quirky, hilarious, and optimistic, while Hollis is pessimistic, perpetually annoyed, and of course, grumpy. But together, they form the sweetest duo that I absolutely loved. I was so happy that this book didn't include a miscommunication trope, or at least not a big one. Side note, I feel like all the romances I've been reading recently include this like massive miscommunication trope and it is just killing me. I'm like, just say what you feel. And like this, obviously like all romances are going to have that a little bit, but this was not big at all and it did not deter me or like make me not like it. Um, and I said in their esteem relatively early on, which we can all be happy about. So it's not a closed door romance. If you're into a closed door romance, this is not it, but it is a good steam if you are, if you like an open door thing. I am also a sucker for a road trip story and truly giggled at some of the realistic and hilarious dialogue and situations that this duo got into. An added bonus was the sentimentality of the story between Rosie and Elsie, truly heart-wrenching and beautiful, and it did a great job of moving the story along and juxtaposing alongside Hollis and Millie's relationship. This was a pure delight and sure to please all romance lovers. I thought it was so, so good. So we have a horror and we have a romance that I think all of you guys would really love on the opposite ends of the spectrum there. And that was the last book that I actually finished. So I'm about to read and I have currently reading on my Goodreads, though I have not started it yet. Um, I'm going to be reading I Have Some Questions for You by Rebecca Mackay. And I'm actually trying to go into this as blind as I possibly can. It has mixed reviews, but I've actually seen a lot of good ones from some of my favorite creators and some of my favorite reviewers. So I have high hopes. I'm two books behind my reading goal for the year, which is 70 books. That would be the most that I've ever read. Um, so I have some questions for you. Yeah, it is a 3.69 on Goodreads out of 51,457 ratings and 7,063 reviews. I'm intrigued. And I want to learn more about it. If I don't like it, I can just stop. That's what I'm trying to tell myself. Like I don't need to continue or like read books that I don't love. Um, but that's going to be up next. And then we'll see how the rest of the month goes. Um Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. 
Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. And in other book news, I honestly, guys, I don't have too, too much. I kind of am wishing now that I had released the August... um, book club picks we could talk about it but we don't have it yet and you gotta just be sure to be following me on my instagram at grace's reading nook to hear what those choices are going to be and make sure that you get your vote in so you can vote with us for august but other than that i think i want to just get right into the discussion of the only one left because there is so much to talk about so If you have not finished the book, there will be spoilers obviously coming up, lots of them, because there are a lot of twists and turns in this book, some that I saw coming, some that I did not see coming. But if you don't want things spoiled and you have not finished, close out of this podcast now and come back to it later. If you don't care, you just want to listen, keep on listening, just know there will be spoilers. So let's go ahead and get started with my chapter by chapter breakdown and thoughts about everything that was going on in this crazy book and this crazy ending. So we are starting on chapter 24. Kit asks Lenora to tell her about the baby and she just types one word, gone. Then she refuses to talk about it or type it rather at all. When Archie comes with Lenora's meal, Kit asks him if Lenora were ever pregnant and he said no, that she must be mistaken. Him and Lenora were close in the mansion in 1929 because they were close to the same age. When Kit asks about Ricardo, he says that she should stop messing around in the past In the typewriter part, Lenora proved that Archie was lying for some reason by describing Archie as the one taking her pregnancy photo and feeling the baby kick, and he knew all about her and Ricardo. But yet again, nobody is saying Lenora or Virginia's name. I still think they're switched somehow and want to know how soon. So we're jumping right back in, and I 
to be honest, I wanted to give some context about like what the hell was going on in chapter 24. But I feel like I can't without like giving anything. It's just so many characters and so much delusion and so much confusion. But basically, Kit is finding out that Lenora was pregnant. And she is saying no, she wasn't. No, she wasn't. The baby is gone. And like, you know, Archie is saying that Lenora was never pregnant. Um, after finishing the book, we now know why he is saying that, obviously, but let's just continue on. Chapters 26 and 27. Um, I forgot to mention before about the whole side of the cliff falling away, making the mansion even more dangerous to live in than ever. Because Carter is afraid of his own cottage falling off the cliff, which honestly, like, where the hell is his cottage? Or like, were we worried that Carter was going to like his cottage was going to get crushed by the cliff? It just doesn't add up to me. I was kind of confused about that. But whatever, because he was afraid of like, all of that, he moved into the third floor. Kit says that she is trusting him now um, more than ever, but I'm not so sure. And now I don't know if we can trust Lenora either. She stopped her Walkman by herself. And it was only of reach of her right hand, which she can't use unless it wasn't her who stopped it. Then that night, there are some like local boys who come to terrorize the house. And one of them is Kenny, which who is Kit's friend with benefits there. He tells her that there is probably more than meets the eye to Lenora. But how would he know? I don't know. Um, in the middle of the night, Kit wakes up to Lenora's call button being pressed. And in the typewriter is a single sheet of paper that just says it's all your fault over and over and over. She, Lenora, says that it's from Virginia. What could that mean? So here I said, if my theory is right, and Lenora is Mrs. Baker and the woman Kit is taking care of is Virginia, I'm not sure what that means. At this point, like I had it right, you guys, but my head was just completely scrambled and I need to know what happened next. Like, I was right pretty early on about this big twist about Virginia, about Lenora actually being Virginia, about Mrs. Baker being Lenora or Lenora being Mrs. Baker. But like, I couldn't put the pieces together in my head for some reason. I don't know if I was like trying hard enough. I don't know if I didn't want to try because I wanted to enjoy the ride. But anyway, I knew what was going on. I'm curious to know if you guys did too. And from what I talked to you guys, no one really thought that But I guess I just read too many thrillers. In chapter 28, Kit confronts everyone in the house about who typed the page in the typewriter because it clearly couldn't have been Lenora. Or could it? I'm not sure, but I think Lenora being able to move is more of a red herring, unless she's only doing it to protect herself or someone else. Just a reminder, I know that we know the twist, but I am referring to Lenora in my notes as like the Lenora that we thought she was the whole time. Basically like the Lenora who is who Kit is taking care of. Nobody confessed to typing the letter and instead Mrs. Baker turned it back on Kit and blamed her. Mrs. Baker told her to tell her if she heard any more noises coming from her room though. One of the biggest bombshells of the chapter though comes in the typewritten part um, when Lenora and Virginia overheard their parents fighting and they find out that Lenora's father isn't actually her father. Their mother had an affair with one of the servants in the house then Lenora runs upstairs sobbing and later goes down to talk to her mother, but finds out that she's taken the whole bottle of laudanum, however you say that, that drug that she is on. Chapters 29 and 30, because Lenora is so upset that Kit made her break her prized possession, the Paris snow globe, she is no longer willing to type. Then they strike up a deal. Kit will take Lenora outside in exchange for information about her baby and what happened the night of her family's murders. Kit does it while the whole house goes out for Mary Milton's funeral. They honestly have a lovely time and it was great to see Lenora outside feeling free. 
And why was she trapped in, or why is she trapped inside her room anyway? She can't go anywhere else in the house except that room, which I find really absurd. Then she explains that she did have a son, but he was taken from her. Who took him and why? And is she telling the truth? She nearly refuses to tell Kit the rest of the story, but Kit isn't taking no for an answer and goes to get the typewriter to bring it outside to learn more. When she gets back there, though, the whole house is back from the funeral and Mrs. Baker is pissed. In the typewriter chapter, we learn that Lenora's pregnancy is getting harder to hide and that she needs to tell someone to take her to a doctor. And the biggest bombshell we learn is that Mrs. Baker was the one having an affair with their father. So I was so here I said I was clearly wrong about Mrs. Baker being Lenora, but that's okay. See, guys, I don't know. I, I, I was right. <laughs> I just couldn't put the pieces together. Um, I said, I have to throw crazy theories out there sometimes, but I'm still not convinced that Lenora is in Virginia. But honestly, at this point, I'm trying not to sleuth as much as possible and instead just enjoy the book, which I understand what was going on there. Chapters 31 and 32, Mrs. Baker threw the typewriter into the ocean. And with that, Kit assumes she's going to be fired. She starts packing her things and realizes the pages that her and Lenora had typed were um, were gone. So she goes to confront Mrs. Baker. Mrs. Baker tells her she threw them all in the fire. This leads Kit to believe that Mrs. Baker is the one that killed Mary because she realized she was leaving with the suitcase full of information and had to be stopped. Specifically because Lenora is leaving the Hopes and Mansion to Mrs. Baker, so she says. If word got out that Lenora had a child and grandchild, it would most likely go to them and Mrs. Baker can't have that. In the typewriter chapter, Mrs. Baker and Lenora make a deal. Lenora won't tell anyone about the affair Mrs. Baker is having with her father if Mrs. Baker helps her get what she needs for her baby. I'm sure that is going to end very badly, and I was right. Finally, in chapter 32, Kit goes to explore Mrs. Baker's room because she is downstairs getting drunk on wine. There are photos of a supposed young Mrs. Baker with a man 10 years older than her in Paris. Is that possibly Lenora's father? She also finds a box of receipts, including one with a year's worth of receipts to a nursing home. Could it be that Virginia or even Lenora is still alive and being kept there? Then Hope's End has another shift and it's closer to falling off the cliff than ever. When Kit goes into Lenora's room to check on her, Archie is already there. Why? Could Archie be Ricky? I don't know. He says that he says goodnight to her every night, so that may explain some of the weird noises that she has been hearing, but why didn't he mention that any earlier? I'm believing more now that Virginia may be a ghost in the house. Archie says her presence is very much felt in the house, and what could that mean? I am going off the theory that I should have been following the whole time, as we know, but we're getting there. Chapter 33, Jessie is leaving Hope's End, and I caught something a little weird as she was packing up her suitcase ding, 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 another correct theory, just saying. She gave one last tape for Lenora to listen to. What is on those tapes? They keep coming up and there's something we haven't talked about as being fishy, but now I'm really thinking something is going to come up with them. And I was right. If you know, you know. Kit takes Jessie's Ouija board and she's going to use that to communicate with Lenora instead of the typewriter. Through it, we learn that Bernice was nasty to Lenora. Honestly, for good reason, I said because she was sleeping with um, her husband and she was pregnant with this child. And at that, we find out that she was the one in the nursing home that they have been paying to stay there and nearly $600,000 is what it cost for her to stay there for all of those years. We learn it's to have her keep her mouth shut because she was actually there the night of the murders and she knows what happened. In the typewriter part, it ends with Ricky saying that he and Lenora have to run away together. It's the only way. Bernice is blackmailing them for 50k, which they don't have. So it's their only way out. And is her name Bernice or Beatrice? Because I wrote both. 
<laughs> and I don't know anymore. Sorry, guys. I think it's Bernice. Anyway, in chapter 34, Kit goes to visit Bernice Mayhew in her nursing home. And I said, I'm currently in the middle of the chapter and I caught something. All along, Kit has been saying Lenora has the most piercing green eyes. And Bernice just said all Lenora had to do was bat those big blue eyes at him and he was a goner. I don't know if this is going to be talked about more in this chapter, but that's either a huge clue or a big mistake. This is where I finally clicked it. I'm really curious if this clicked it for any of you guys. And I think it was a pretty obvious clue right here. If you didn't figure it out here, I, I feel like you figured it out pretty shortly after. But all along, she had been saying green eyes, green eyes, green eyes. And so if you weren't like, you know, reading very quickly and you caught the blue eyes thing, I feel like that was pretty obvious. And I wrote, I think that the woman upstairs is actually Virginia and that for perhaps Lenora ran away with Ricky and no one knows. And that's why the woman upstairs can't leave because people would know it's not Lenora, but Virginia instead. The girls have different fathers, so different colored eyes. When Bernice gets to talking, we learn that she had been given the night off, but she stayed behind to see if Ricky was going to have sex with Lenora. And she was right. He was. Then she saw Lenora with blood on her hands and she claims that Ricky was killed by her too and that she threw his body over the cliff. This part doesn't make sense to me, but it could be true. But I think there's something key that's missing. She also said in the house that she heard a scream from upstairs and that she wasn't sure if it was the mother's or Virginia's. She keeps saying the younger sister and that that girl was young and was in such a state. What does that mean? Was she already paralyzed? But that wouldn't make sense because she was gallivanting around with Peter. My head is so twisted with all of this and I don't know what to believe. Then Detective Vic, of all people, walks in and says that he was called because the receptionist called the insurance company and no one knew of Kit. She's about to get in even more trouble with the law, which won't be good. I said, guys, it has to be Virginia up there. It has to be. I am telling you, the different colored eyes is my final straw. Then in chapters 35 and 36, Kit finally figured out just like I did. And guys, I have to say, this is a great twist. And I'm kind of sad that I knew it all along with all the sleuthing I was doing and that I figured it out because if I had just read Please Lenora on page 308 without knowing it was Virginia upstairs, I would have been so happy and shocked. What a great twist. Kit made the connection with the blue eyes just like we did. She looked at the portraits and saw blue eyes there. The woman upstairs has bright green, so she is clearly Virginia. I just now need to know how this all plays out. I will give it to Riley Sager, though. This is a fantastic twist. Virginia is clearly the victim and Lenora is evil. And chapter 37, we learn that Mrs. Baker is actually Lenora. I guessed that at one point, but didn't really double down on that theory because I didn't know how it would plausibly work. But it is so good. Here's where I got, it started getting confusing. It could have just ended there, you guys. I feel like it literally could have just ended there and it would have been great. But here's where it got confusing. So I said, we still don't know who did the murders. I am thinking Ricky at this point. When Virginia saw her parents dead, she hung herself. Then Lenora screamed, the police came, but Virginia was still alive. Then what we do know is that Lenora had Virginia declared dead. She became Mrs. Baker, who had fled Hope's End before the murders even took place, and Virginia became Lenora. I was also right about her injuries not being from polio or strokes, but from hanging herself. And she ended up being okay, though. 38 and 39. This is where I got really confused. I'm going to talk about this. I said, so Ricky is the baby's father, but Ricky was really in love with Archie and they were planning to run away together the night of the murders. I did not see that coming. 
Also, Virginia was forced to give birth on her bedroom floor, and her father made Lenora take the baby away immediately after birth. Mrs. Baker, the real one, ended up leaving Hope's end, moving to Canada to raise the baby on her own, so clearly Carter isn't related. But both Lenora and Archie are convinced that Virginia is the one who killed her parents. We're going to find out. This is where I got really confused. So I missed one of the chap one of the little paragraphs in the chapter that differentiated between Ricky and Ricardo. And I know that it was supposed to be confusing. I know that the whole time that Kit was reading the typewritten parts that she was supposed to be thinking that Ricky was Ricardo. Now remember, Ricardo is Bernice's husband, and he works in the house. And because Ricky is a nickname for Ricardo, we were as readers and Kit as the character were supposed to be believing and thinking that Ricky was Ricardo. And that um, Lenora, who was really Virginia, had gotten pregnant by him. But it is described that Archie was actually in love with Ricardo, who, yes, is Bernice's husband, and that Ricardo and Archie were actually having a love affair. So Virginia being pregnant with Ricardo's baby wasn't possible because they were sleeping together, Archie and Ricardo. Ricky is a whole different person. And I asked you guys this on my stories. If you messaged me back, I was like, who the hell is Ricky and Ricardo? I'm so confused. And because I had skimmed over like one chapter as I was like reading furiously, I like missed it somehow. It was like one sentence. You guys it was so confusing. Ricky was another worker who worked in the house. Okay. Just another worker, just another guy. And he was the one who was in love with Virginia um, who got her pregnant. So they were the ones having the affair. But guys, that was so confusing. If you were also confused please let me know because that was so, so confusing. In chapters 40 and 41, I said, what the hell is going on? Guys, there are twists being thrown around left and right. I don't even know what to do. First, why is Lenora, now we're talking about the real Lenora since we found everything out, being so forthcoming with all of this information to Kit? It seems a little suspicious, just saying. But whatever, Kit says goodbye to Virginia, and even though she killed her parents, she still feels for her. But did she really kill them? I don't know. We learned that Kit left the pills by her mother's bedside on purpose, not to kill her, but knowing it was possible she would take more than one because she was in so much pain. That is obviously so heartbreaking and sad and a terrible position to be in. But then chapter 41 really ramps it up. As Kit is leaving, she sees Carter and tells him to get in the car and she tells him everything. That's when she realizes the whole thing with the, um, the gate being left open. And she realizes he said it was the grocery delivery day on Monday, but it was really Tuesday. Thank you to whoever pointed that out in my DMs. Really good sleuthing and a really great catch there. She thinks that he went to get the blood test results to see if Lenora, who was really Virginia, was his grandmother, but had already realized she wasn't. Mary went to do it too. And when she came back and told him he had to kill her because she was the only one who knew it wasn't possible that he was Lenora's grandson. Carter wanted hopes and and the fortune so bad he had to kill so no one knew he didn't deserve it. But of course, he denies everything. All of that was fake, by the way. All of that ended up being sleuthed out as not being true. So like none of that was necessary. But whatever, red herrings left and right. Then the biggest bombshell, I'm still wrapping my head around, Kit's dad is Ricky. His name is Patrick, but the second half of his name, Rick, could be a nickname. But his last name is McDeer and Ricky's was Mayhew. That's where I was wrong, you guys. It was Ricardo Mayhew, not Ricky Mayhew. So we just have Ricky. Patrick, Kit's dad, is Ricky. And he was the one who was in love with Virginia. 
how is this all going to add up? So many of you guys in my DMs had comments about how the ages added up because Virginia is clearly like very old and needs constant care. But her dad is like not that old. And like it was never really talked about like the age difference. And clearly if they were in love like that, there was an age gap. Like he was much younger. But like how much younger? Because Virginia herself was in her teens. So like that doesn't make sense, right? Like she was a teenager when all of this happened. So that doesn't make sense. He couldn't have been that much younger, like logistically, obviously. But so that means that Kit's dad, Patrick, who is Ricky, is also just like as old as Virginia and really old. It doesn't make sense, but whatever. When Kit goes into his room, she realizes that um, Mary's suitcase is the one on the bed with the type letters. So we find out that he is the one who snuck into Hope's End and killed Mary. But why? I'm dying to get all the ends tied up. The ending. Here we go. I said, guys, what the fuck did we just read? And that's truly, that's truly how I feel about that ending. Recapping it now in my head after reading like a lot of great books in between this time, that ending was whack, honestly. I am really trying to wrap my head around all of those twists at the end there. Like, what the fuck? Why does Riley Sager always do too much with these twists? It is just way too much all at the end, but it was really good somehow still, but I just don't know how to feel about it. So Kit's dad, Ricky went to Hope's End to kill Virginia because he is the one who killed their mother because the mother killed the father for Virginia because she was mad. But then Ricky killed the mother because she was taunting him. Virginia's dad paid Ricky 50k to change his name and stay quiet about the pregnancy. But guys, this is where I said, this is going to be confusing because we already talked about this. I said, the one loose end that's really irking me, didn't Ricky and Archie have an affair? Where did that storyline go? It just went poof in the air and was never talked about again. What the fuck? So weird. I have a real problem with that. We already covered that. They are two different people, so we're okay. <laughs> we also learned that Ricky convinced his wife, in a sense, to take the pills and that he swore he would never let Kit go down for the crime, but he let her reputation be ruined. Kit, after all of this, becomes Virginia's caretaker and she's enjoying it. Then we learn, not necessary, that Virginia was faking it all along and she goes and leaves the house. And with who you ask? Jessie, who is her granddaughter. I was right about the tapes. Jessie was sneaking in bits of her own, saying she knew she was Virginia and that she was her granddaughter. Jessie's dad was Virginia's son. And now her and Jessie have flown to Paris and she wrote a letter to Kit explaining everything in hopes that Kit and Archie will join them. Guys, there were literally like 50 twists in the last 90 pages and I don't even know how to feel. It feels like in the end, he was throwing anything in the wall to see what stuck, but it was still somehow fun. My mind is just genuinely still reeling and trying to wrap my head around everything that happened. Overall, this is really good. I really enjoyed the beginning and thought the middle lagged quite a bit. Um, the ending was incredibly fast paced and I felt like I have whiplash from all of those twists. I really would have liked a few of them to have happened like closer to like halfway through or like three quarters of the way through instead of the last like 50 pages because we truly found everything out. Like we could have at least found out about the Lenora and Virginia twist had us sit on that information a little bit. Like I would have liked if Virginia told Kit that herself, then like Kit had to confront that. And then I just, I don't think the whole Ricky being Kit's dad thing was necessary. Like at all. Like Ricky, I would have been fine with him just like disappearing into the void. Like we never hear from him again. That's okay. Um, I just found that to be completely unnecessary. And I also don't love that Virginia was able to walk the whole time. I just don't think that's a great twist. Like it's not, it doesn't seem realistic that she would just stay bedridden for all those years regardless because she was afraid of Lenora. Like that doesn't really make sense. 
But somehow all of this was still fun to me because I thought it was really spooky, really good. And there were, they are good twists. There are just too many of them. So I do think that Riley Sager just did too much with this. <laughs> but um, I got a lot of great responses from you. I think I'm somewhere in the middle. So many people had such strong, strong feelings, though, I will say. So the first person I asked was my friend Noelani, who is Barnes and Noel on um, Instagram. And I was just so confused. I was like, I'm not going crazy. They said that Ricky had a love affair with Archie, right? That's the only thing I feel like was brought up and never talked about again. But she um, got it down for me. She said, Ricky is Kit's dad and was having an affair with Virginia. Ricardo was the one having the affair with Archie. Thank you to Noelani for explaining that to me because I was very, very confused. She also said that when it was revealed that Kit's dad was Ricky, she audibly gasped and that this um, is in her top three for sure. But The Last Time I Lied by Riley Sager is her number one. That one's my number two, if you're curious. Then I had another um, comment in my DMs and this one was kind of a scathing review. She said, I hated the book. It's a total ripoff of other thrillers like To a T. And all the twists were so messy. The house collapsing was just dumb. The detective took Kit's word for it after th she thought that she was a liar and unstable. And then, oh, wait, sure, I'll believe everything you say. Basically, she hated the main character and the ending and just not realistic. Um, I kind of agree. I'll, there's just too much. Like, I am just somewhere in the middle. Like, it's really hard for me. I gave this a four out of five stars because I did enjoy reading it. Um, I'm probably like 3.75 to a four. There was just a lot, there were a lot of problems with it. I will be completely honest. Um, but not enough for me to like not say I enjoyed the read. It, it was still good for me. The ending just like was too, too fast and furious. I had a lot of great discussions though. And if you are wanting to talk that ending with me and wanting to talk about what you guys were thinking the whole way through reading, please DM me because I'm really, really curious what all of your thoughts are on it. So let me talk about my um, ranking of all the Riley Sager books. I posted this this week and I've gotten a lot of comments on it. So I'm going to start with the lowest. So the one that is the worst for me is Survive the Night. I really didn't really like the book. It all took place in a car and I just felt like I was so, so bored and that ending was just really unrealistic and odd. Then The House Across the Lake. I actually enjoyed House Across the Lake, though. That's an unpopular opinion. I feel like the vast majority of people did not enjoy House Across the Lake. Um, there is a pretty big semi and mostly unrealistic twist that happens before without giving anything away. Um, that it was really, really like divisive. Like people either loved it or hated it. And the vast majority, I think, hated it. Um, I didn't hate it, but it was pretty forgettable for me. One of the things that I really disliked and something that really annoys me in thrillers is when the main character, mostly female, has a drinking problem and it's just thrown in there for like no reason. And the main character in The House Across the Lake had like a pretty severe drinking problem and it almost like was supposed to make her feel unreliable, but it added nothing to the plot. And I'm just really sick of that being used as a plot point when it doesn't necessarily have to be one. Anyway, next was Lock Every Door. So that's my fifth choice. Um, this is at the top of so many people's author rankings for Riley Sager. Um, it didn't stand out to me. <laughs> it's like that Abby Lee Miller um, sound on TikTok. It just didn't stick out to me, though. Um, cool hotel, spooky vibes. I found it completely like 
I just, I knew the twists like coming like right away. Um, didn't love them really at all. Didn't feel connected to it. Final Girls is my number four slot. This one could be interchangeable with my third, which is the only one left, which I already said. Um, but I really liked Final Girls. I like the idea of it being kind of like, I love the idea of like a horror movie final girl. Um, if you know what that is, like the final surviving girl from like a horror movie. We talked about it a lot in college. I took a horror movie class, which is funny. I really enjoyed it. I think it was really unique. I liked it a lot more, surprisingly, than Grady Hendrick's book, The Final Girl Support Group. Um, there are a lot of twists, again, thrown at the end of Final Girls, but still really good. Definitely a solid four. Number three was the only one left. Don't need to go into it. Um, middle of the road, though. The top two I loved. So The Last Time I Lied by Riley Saker is my number two. I love a summer camp vibe. I talked about this a lot. It's like one of my all-time favorite like tropes in writing. I think it's so much fun because I went to summer camp as a kid. Um, and there is a twist in this one that is so good. I was like, there's no way that's what's going on. It was awesome. It was so good. And I really enjoyed the ending as well. Super shock worthy. And then my favorite is Home Before Dark by Riley Sager. I don't know why I'm saying by Riley Sager. My favorite is Home Before Dark. Um, it sort of rips off The Haunting of Hill House, I will say. And I love that show and I have yet to read the book. I will say it's just very similar plot point. But even beside that point, I absolutely loved Home Before Dark. It was so spooky. And it's definitely my favorite Riley Sager book by far. So that is my final ranking. That is the end of our July book club with The Only One Left by Riley Sager. I hope you all had a fun time reading it. Thank you all for reading along with me. And also, I hope you had a great reading month of July in general. I know I feel like I had some great reads so far this month, and I'm hoping to get a couple more in before the end of the month. And that is the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And be sure to be following me over on my Instagram at Grace's Reading Nook for all the updates on what I'm currently reading. And of course, to help choose our August book club pick, which will be up, the choices will be up later this week. And again, thank you all so much for listening. Hope you have a great couple of weeks and I'll talk to you all later. Bye guys. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.